this is one of the things that uh, allows the war to continue. If there was more of a public demand for, um, for information, for conclusion, uh, you would see it ending. Welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, a completely student-run podcast recorded at the Johns Hopkins University. My name is Fabiana Corsi-Mendez, and today I'm joined by my co-hosts, Amanda and Indy. The ongoing U.S. military presence in Afghanistan has become a sore point in American international and domestic affairs. It was a major political promise for Donald Trump to pull the U.S. out of what have been called its forever wars in the Middle East. Four years, several peace talks, and large troop removals later, the U.S. has the lowest number of troops in Afghanistan it's had in 20 years, but is still not completely pulled out of the country. To stay is now a major question facing the Biden administration. Joining us to discuss the forever war and the unique role of the media in this conflict is Jessica Donati. Jessica Donati covers foreign affairs in the State Department for the Wall Street Journal in Washington, D.C. She joined the Wall Street Journal as the bureau chief in Afghanistan in 2015. She previously worked for Reuters in Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. She recently published her book Eagle Down about the U.S. Special Operations Forces fighting in Afghanistan. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. All right, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So why don't we just go ahead and get started with, um, you know, an initial view of the problem. The U.S. has had a military presence in Afghanistan for around 20 years. Can you give our listeners just a little bit of background on why the U.S. got involved with Afghanistan in the first place? Sure. Um, Well, it was a very long time ago. Um, If you can remember, there was a a series of attacks uh, that were blamed on al-Qaeda, uh, culminating in the uh, September 11 attacks in New York. And uh, the uh, U.S. Um, went into Afghanistan to try and uh, find uh, Osama bin Laden, who was uh, thought to have been the mastermind of these attacks. He was staying in Afghanistan as a guest of the Taliban, and he had made himself quite an inconvenient guest for the group, but they were um, they were unable to, uh, to to kick him out. And so uh, the U.S. arrived and uh, on the hunt for uh, bin Laden, they ousted the Taliban. And then uh, and then the involvement um, escalated into all sorts of other things. And, you know, as this conflict has seen 20 years, I believe four presidents, how have U.S. foreign policy objectives evolved over the course of the war? Right. So, I mean, when they went in, it was strictly just an operation to uh, capture uh, the person responsible for, kill or capture the person responsible for for these attacks and uh, get rid of the terrorist group. Over time, it became a nation-building exercise where uh, the U.S. decided that they were going to help Afghanistan uh, stand on its feet again because the years of civil war and uh, Taliban rule had left the country with no infrastructure, Uh, very uh, little in the way of education, health services. Uh, The condition for women in the country was uh, very poor. So they decided they were going to help Afghanistan become a sort of Western-style democracy. So they invested a huge amount of money in things like um, elections, democracy, uh, the armed forces, building up an army, a police force, the judiciary, schools, women's health, and uh, and, and and so forth. And uh, that continued until about uh, 2014, where 
the Obama administration decided that they were going to officially put an end to the war and turn it into a training mission. And uh, the idea was that they would be able to fully uh, pull out by 2016. Uh, the problem was that the whole premise on which this was based, that the Afghan state was ready to stand on its own, was uh, flawed. And so as soon as the U.S. reduced its assistance to Afghanistan, the Taliban resurged and that forced the, the U.S. to uh, re-escalate its involvement. And in terms of the involvement since 2016, you know, why is the U.S.'s presence continuing? Why is it described as a "quote unquote" forever war? Sure. Well, I mean, this is the uh, this is the main uh, focus of my book, uh, which describes how uh, special operations have been involved in this effort to prevent Afghanistan from uh, collapsing. The absence of a sort of official U.S. combat mission has meant that Afghan forces are left on their own to try and prevent the Taliban from taking territory. And without uh, American support, they are unable to hold on to major population centers. Several cities are at risk, or Kunduz, for example, a northern city, has already fallen twice. And so the U.S. military involvement is to prevent um, a sort of embarrassing uh, major territorial loss to the Taliban. And, uh, and and it continues. And this is one of the questions that the Biden administration is facing now, because on one hand, he doesn't he does not want to become yet another president to extend this war, which has been going on for 20 years now. But on the other hand, if the U.S. does withdraw the military support that it's offering to Afghanistan, there's a serious risk that whole chunks of the country could fall out of the government's control, whether it's the Taliban that take over it or some other uh, local group. And so th this is the problem that they face. I wanted to ask a little bit about, you know, the image of the United States as well as its presence in Afghanistan. So to kind of start that off, I, I know you published an excerpt from your book in The Atlantic about the bombing of a trauma hospital run by Doctors Without Borders or MSF. And so, so do you believe that these types of actions in warfare and then the subsequent you know, secrecy, trying to cover up what's happening or maybe the objectives, has this affected the image of the U.S. in the Middle East and abroad? I mean, absolutely. And the, the thing is, is that MSF, the, the bombing came out because it was such a huge uh, tragedy and such a huge mistake. But there are uh, countless examples of where the U.S. military has made mistakes, whether they have uh, delivered air support to an area uh, and uh, killed civilians accidentally or whether as often happen or relatively often happens, they mistake uh, villagers out collecting firewood or doing other things for insurgents and end up uh, killing those. There's a lot of mistakes and those mistakes build up a huge amount of resentment in the population. And uh, it's likely one of the reasons why the Taliban insurgency has been gaining in strength over the years, because so many of these mistakes have contributed to local frustration with it. Uh, in addition to mistakes like the airstrike, you also have a situation where the U.S., um, from the very beginning, allied um, itself with some fairly unpleasant uh, warlord types who are seen as rights violators who are responsible for uh, rights violations during the civil war, and they've become close U.S. allies and uh, important members of the government since then. And so all of that makes it difficult for uh, for Afghans to support the U.S.-backed government because of the amount of, uh, of corruption 
at the top because of the abusive past of many of the leaders in the government. And what about the attitude around the world? Has the global attitude, such as in you know allied countries or other countries uh, towards the U.S. Um, and NATO presence in Afghanistan changed over the years? And how has it been in general? I think it has. I mean, if you look at, uh, for example, uh, the role of uh, Russia um, initially, they were much more supportive of the U.S. intervention uh, in the earlier years of the war. Uh, same with um, Pakistan, even Iran, uh, were all uh, in favor of the U.S. presence there, and they su- supported it in various ways, whether it was keeping um, roads open or facilitating transport routes, whether it was avoiding, uh, you know, supporting the insurgents. And what you have seen in more recent years, especially since 2014, when the U.S. uh, drew down most of its troops, you see regional countries hedging their bets. And so they're establishing contacts, not just with the government, but also with the insurgent side, because they don't know which side is going to come out on top. And, and generally, looking at the conflict as a whole, the fact that the U.S. has been there for 20 years in what is increasingly obvious, uh, uh, obviously a losing situation doesn't do well for, for the American image. And during the 2016 elections, we saw that you know, pulling out of long-term conflicts, especially in the Middle East, was a major talking point. But you know, in 2020, this was overshadowed by issues like COVID-19 and Trump's domestic policy record. So would you say that the war in Afghanistan has become unpopular in the U.S., or is it maybe an issue that the public has largely forgotten about? I mean, I think even going back to 2016, there was really very little discussion of what should happen in Afghanistan. It came up uh, in in interviews with the, with the separate campaigns, but if you followed the the debates during that time, there was really no even mention of what should happen in Afghanistan. And nobody really knew when uh, Trump won the election what he was going to do, other than he had a long-standing, uh, long-standing skeptic of the war. Um, the, the, the question of whether the, the public, I mean, it's, it's documented in surveys that the Afghan war is unpopular uh, with the U.S. public. And, uh, but unfortunately, it's not, an, it's not an election issue anymore because the number of troops that are exposed to the risks of fighting in the war are not really um, part of the public at large. There's no draft and few people know anyone who's still fighting there. It's an all-volunteer force. And so this is one of the things that uh, allows the war to continue. If there was more of a public demand for, um, for information, for a conclusion, uh, you would see it ending. And, uh, and, and again, this is one of the, the reasons that I ended up writing my book was because uh, it seemed to me a rather deliberate effort by uh, U.S. leadership to remove the war from the public spotlight by turning it over to special operations and the kind of troops who do not give access to journalists. If you're a journalist, you can't just go and embed on an operation or for any length of time with special operations troops because of the, of the nature of these troops. Uh, and so nobody really knows what they're doing. And uh, they've enabled the war to, to continue without there being much discussion about it. I think that if the um, media and uh, made more of an effort jointly, perhaps, to uh, lobby the military and the U.S. administration at large to be more forthcoming about what it's actually doing in Afghanistan, you might see it open up. 
But at the moment, the media, as you pointed out, is distracted with other things, whether it's domestic divisions at home, they have the pandemic, the Afghan war has been going on for 20 years. So there's a certain amount of fatigue with covering it. It's a high risk place to cover. Um, it just generally falls out of um, it's fallen out of the public consciousness. And so it's not an election debate. And I wouldn't say that I'm especially hopeful that in the coming years, it's going to be more of a topic. So you mentioned previously that the war in Afghanistan has been described as a forever war. There are all these unpopular sentiments associated with the war in Afghanistan. Um, and there's really no political impetus to stay for the U.S. to stay in Afghanistan. So with all these factors combined, why has it been so difficult for the U.S. to pull out of, out of Afghanistan completely up to this point? That's a, that's a really good question. And uh, the Trump administration or President Trump's experience was really demonstrated the difficulty in getting out because uh, Trump didn't really uh, care what happened to Afghans. He didn't care too much for Afghans, for Afghan people. He thought that it was the U.S. should focus on itself and rebuilding the U.S. And yet, despite his effort to get uh, U the U.S. out, he wasn't able to do it. And that's because the national security establishment in the U.S. is very uh, is very opposed to leaving. Uh, the general argument goes that there are uh, that there is the risk that Afghanistan could become a uh, hotbed for terrorists again, and that it could be used to plan attacks. And so, if the U.S. leaves, they'll have no way of ensuring that uh, that a repeat of 9/11 or, or similar happens again. And the reality is is that no president wants to be the you know the one who pulled troops out of Afghanistan, saw it collapse. And then uh, was responsible for, uh, you know, a horrible attack planned uh, from Afghan soil. So it, it has been really difficult. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, the U.S. is now on a path to to pull out, and that's if Trump had stayed in office, he likely would have continued with the plan to pull all troops out by May, uh, despite the warnings from the uh, in, from the intelligence community and from others that Afghanistan could be. Uh, could be used by terrorists again and that it could collapse into a civil war if the U.S. goes. Uh, and uh, the image of what happened in Iraq after the U.S. pulled out uh, with the um, rise of ISIS um, is another thing that has sort of weighed on decision makers at the time. So, um, so it's difficult. And we're seeing that now with the Biden administration. We know that Biden, uh, right uh, back when uh, the Obama administration was considering what to do and decided to surge troops to up to 100,000 troops uh, in, in 2009, Biden was one of the few voices who really opposed that. So he's not someone that really wants uh, to be in Afghanistan. He's always been against uh, against. Uh, increasing the U.S. involvement there. But at the same time, for him, it's a difficult decision to just pull out because the likelihood is that if the U.S. does uh, withdraw all of its troops, the uh, peace process that's just started um, risks collapsing. Uh, you have a risk that the Taliban may then decide this is their chance to try and uh, win and not have to negotiate a power-sharing arrangement with uh, the Afghan government. And so it's a tricky decision for him. Right. So in um, in February 2020, the Trump administration concluded a peace deal between the U.S. and the Taliban. And that was sort of, you know, in trying to 
get the U.S. in a better position to pull out of Afghanistan in the future. So up until now, it's been a year since this peace deal was negotiated. What has come of this? Is the U.S. any closer to being able to pull out of Afghanistan? And can you describe a little bit other efforts by the Trump administration and previous administrations to end the quote-unquote forever war? Yeah, I mean, it shouldn't be um, understated. I mean, the F, the uh, how, how successful they were in actually getting the Afghan government and the Taliban to the table, recognizing each other uh, as entities with, with whom to negotiate. I mean, that was a really big achievement. Nobody had managed to do it up until that point, and it's, usually, and it's often overlooked because the path forward is so um, tricky and unpromising. unpromising. Um, but the U.S. Um, had been involved for almost uh, or at least a decade in efforts of talking to the Taliban. So there was nothing particularly new about, um, about trying to negotiate a deal with them. What was new and what the Trump administration did uh, different was that he uh, agreed to start public negotiations with the Taliban that excluded the Afghan government. Because up until that point, U.S. contacts with the Taliban were uh, were secret. They they didn't want to show uh, the world that they were negotiating with the Taliban because it would look like they were undermining the Afghan government. And the peace process never kicked off because the U.S. refused to enter into a negotiation that excluded the Afghan government, and the Taliban refused to enter a negotiation that included them. So they were at a stalemate. So Trump lifted this restriction, and that's how you ended up with uh, with the, with the talks and the a deal that was signed in February, uh, and so that was the, that was the first step. The, the major problem with the deal is that it sets the U.S. on a very strict um, timeline for putting troops out, with numbers and dates, uh, and uh, it only gives them fourteen months. And uh, nobody really thinks that this is a feasible timeline for the Afghan and Taliban sides to figure out how to share power and how to run the country. Uh, it's, I mean, it's something that's much more likely to take years. But uh, the conditions in the deal don't require the Afghan and Taliban to reach a settlement. It only requires them to start talks, which they've already done. And so, unfortunately, a lot of the conditions that are, um, that are required of the Taliban in this deal uh, do not really uh, do not really help uh, bring the peace process to to an end, and that's why you're seeing this problem now with the Biden administration trying to decide whether to pull out before a peace agreement has been has been reached. So, just to stay on the subject of peace talks, obviously, since last February, we've had a complete change in administration. You know, Biden has promised to take a markedly different approach to foreign policy than the Trump administration, to say the least. So new peace talks are now underway. Um, how do you think these talks will be different from last year's efforts? I mean, there are essentially um, a continuation of the process that, that was started. Um, in Fe- so in February 2020, uh, you had the U.S. and the Taliban reached an agreement. One of the conditions was that the Taliban had to start talks with the Afghans, and that started in September, uh, and it started months behind schedule. And so... Uh, over the since since then, it hasn't really made much progress. They were stuck in uh, in very very basic details such as how to resolve disputes and which uh, body of, of law to to look at. And uh, and they've only just restarted after a long break. Uh, 
one what they're likely to be doing at this point is trying to figure out an agenda for the process to figure out what topics uh they need to they need to cover um I mean, one of the problems that, uh, for example, one of the Afghan government negotiators told me was was figuring out and agreeing on an agenda. Uh, for example, for the Afghan government, you know, the top item on the agenda is a ceasefire. According to this official, the last item on the Taliban agenda is a ceasefire. So they're really far apart. And, uh, and, and that suggests that it's going to take a long time before they can even agree on the order in which to approach the various uh, topics that they need to figure out, uh, much less reach a resolution. So in terms of, of, uh, of how it's likely to be different, I mean, the Biden administration has, uh, has been very vocal about wanting to talk more about human rights uh, than the past administration uh, the past administration was very much uh, about the idea that uh, it wasn't up to the U.S. to decide how the Afghans and Taliban should decide to 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 rule their country. I mean, they, they said they continued to support women's rights, but they were very vague about it. There wasn't any sort of suggestion that they were willing to um, make make a huge case for it. So I think with the Biden administration, you may see more of an emphasis on the U.S. trying to get the Taliban to uh, safeguard certain gains that have been made over over the years. Um, but that's if the peace process even survives uh, the next few months, because if the Biden administration decides not to pull out, as seems pretty likely from the messaging that's been that's been coming out from the Pentagon and the State Department, uh, it seems that the, there's a risk that the Taliban could decide that the U.S. has violated its uh, part of the agreement and that the U.S. isn't serious about implementing the deal and they will walk away from the table. And so there may not actually be a peace process uh, after May. So I want to circle back to a really interesting point that you made earlier about the potential role of the media in all of this. Now, you made it clear that the media clearly isn't able to really break into what special forces are doing at this point. But do you see, uh, in your professional opinion as a journalist, an opportunity for the media to take action by changing its coverage of the peace talks this time around? I mean, I think that the uh, the, the media could make a decision. I mean, it's and it's also hard to generalize uh, to generalize, you know, because there's so many different types of media, but. Each organization could make uh, some kind of judgment that it is uh, important for the public good rather than for revenue uh, to cover the to cover the war uh, and uh, and make uh, and, and you know put it on the, the top of the website the front pages and keep it in keep talking about it. I mean, this is a decision that they could make, but it doesn't. I don't think it generates much reader interest, and it's very expensive to send reporters over to Afghanistan to maintain an, an operations there. Uh, even even taking journalists out of uh, wh- wherever they may be and sending them to Doha to cover the talks, uh, which are very very slow moving, um, is um, is expensive and and probably you know you're not going to get a lot of a lot of reader interest in it so i think it's a difficult business decision for for media organizations to make but i really do think that if all the major networks decided okay we're going to find something to say about afghanistan every week and we're going to make sure it's top of the hour or front page i think people would start to think more about it and i think you know while it is difficult to cover special operations i mean what i found 
uh, when I set out to uncover what they were doing was that it was possible. Uh, you know, it just takes to just takes a lot of time and investment, but you can talk to individual soldiers, whether they're soldiers who have left and want to, you know, and are willing to talk about their experiences or whether it's a case of going through army public affairs and getting uh, permission to talk about individual operations. You can talk uh, to the Afghan side who work with the U.S. and you can figure out what they're doing. So it's not difficult to build a picture of what special operations are actually doing. It just takes a lot of time and investment, uh, which, as I mentioned, does not make a lot of business sense for media organizations, especially uh, when when the U.S. public is so gripped by things like coronavirus, uh, like the um, incident on the Capitol, uh, all of these things are, are attracting more readers and more investment. And so I think I think that's unlikely to change, unfortunately. And looking into the future, I wanted to ask your opinion whether the current government of Afghanistan could survive politically and militarily if the U.S., you know, ends up fully pulling out of the country? And what challenges does the does the Afghanistan government face if the U.S. decides to do so? It, it, one thing depends on how the U.S. Uh, decides to leave, if it actually does leave, because it does continue to pretty much bankroll the Afghan army and police. Uh, and so if the U.S. was to pull out all of its troops and then decide that it couldn't continue to give any money to the Afghan armed forces, including, you know, supplying them with weapons and trucks and all of these things because they're not there to oversee it, then I think you would see a really quick collapse of the Afghan state because they don't have any funding to support themselves and it's really financing an international community that is holding them together at the moment. Um, if the US uh, and obviously their allies decided that they could... Um, that they that they are going to continue to to fund them, then you may see uh, a sort of splintering, perhaps, of the of the government because the president himself may not uh, attract much of a following, um, but there are other uh, Pashtun leaders who would, or other ethnicities who have their own following. You have the highly trained, uh, highly equipped, highly experienced Afghan special operations who uh, you know, have been fighting the Taliban for years and who are definitely not going to just roll over and give up and give up Kabul and other major cities. So the likelihood, uh, assuming that there was a continued, uh, some level of continued support to pay salaries and provide equipment, you would likely see some kind of splintering or civil war situation, something like what, you, what happened in the 1990s after the Soviets left. Uh, and uh, that's one of the scenarios that I think is worrying um, U.S. decision makers now as they try to decide what they should do uh, before the May deadline arrives. All right. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us, Jessica. We really appreciate hearing all of your answers and, you know, of course, hearing based on your expertise. And of course, we'd love to encourage our audience to learn more in your book, Eagle Down. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program and the SNF Agora Institute at the Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA, that's at Hopkins P-O-F-A, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest of our content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and feel free to leave us a rating and a review. We'll see you next time.